Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob's Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Uh, doing this 34 years, writing, making, creating, publishing comics. Happy to share this incredible journey of um, of, of, of my my life lifelong obsession with comic books since I was a wee lad pulling these comic books off spinner racks in markets all over Southern California that turned into a uh, really awesome, fun career. I, I, I just am uh, living a charmed life, and, and now we're doing this podcast, and, and I love uh, hanging out with you guys each and every week, and today we're going to jump right into it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a, a fan of the show. Today we are discussing fandom. Fandom then and now, fandom in the modern age, fandom with social media, with Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram, with TikTok. What does it mean? How has it altered um, our comic book experience? How, do, how does it alter the comic books that we make? And uh, and so we're going to dive uh, deep into that with a couple of recent incidents that really opened my eyes and just refocused uh, to, to, to the current age and, and what I personally, from my seat, that, that I, I look at everything as, as in regards to this industry and fandom as, which is as a writer, as a creator, as an artist, as a publisher, and as a fan myself, as a fan myself. And what I think is, is, is going on in regards to um, where everything is heading, how everything is being shaped, because it, it would be uh, completely irresponsible to not embrace that fandom has 100% continued to uh, to evolve, and and it's it's interesting to see uh, exactly you know how how fandom is shaping what is to come, and 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 how who's paying attention and why, and what are the after effects, and maybe a little bit about etiquette. Etiquette is there any etiquette in social media? But uh, prior to that. A, 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 a hot topic uh, conversation for this morning. I have the finale, um, and I don't know, normally use this to to talk about current projects. I've talked a lot about my projects in the past. But uh, as, as you listen to or find this episode, it will be around the time that a finale of a storyline that I have been doing called uh, G.I. Joe Snake Eyes Dead Game arrives. And it will find uh, itself into stores this week at the time of this podcast. And the uh, the genesis of, of this, I did a uh, round of press, and that also contributed to my uh, talking about fandom. Because this, this subject came up in each and every one of the 12 different interviews that I did. And, uh, and, and, and remind me, those were Zoom interviews for the first time every single promotional interview. Uh, spot that I did, promotion, 25, 30, 45 minute interview was uh, accompanied by a recorded Zoom uh, meeting, which which I used to do telephone calls. And during a telephone call, let me tell you, I can draw a page while I'm on the phone. When I'm talking to my buddies, I'm drawing pages. I'm sketching them. A lot of the times I'm inking them. The thought work is, is removed. So if I'm going to jump on the phone, I'm going to ink a page. And um, it's easy to either via speaker, phone, or just up, you know, up on my ear, 
just, you know, uh, pinching it with my shoulder to my ear or my hand or whatever, I, I ink a page. And this has been uh, par for the course of how I have conducted my business for the best part of the last 30 years. So so while I was um, promoting the Snake Eyes Dead game, number five, and, and talking it up, it was interesting to me because, again, this pertains to fans. Several of them told me, so this will go into our fandom segment, that people want video content. So that there's something that, that I'll touch upon further down the road here, uh, further down the show. And uh, but but Snake Eyes Dead Game is a, Dead Game number five is a big fun finale, m- made way more so by the fact that I was able to get a just murderers row all star uh, Hall of Fame group of collaborators that inked over my pencils. A lot of people, uh, the people who actually make their way into a comic store, uh, maybe a signing, a convention, they understand the exact relationship between um, a penciler and an inker, or maybe they don't. They think they do, um, and, and 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 because there is some confusion over the years, inker, finisher, embellisher, these are just these are just some of the different terminologies used for kind of the last hand that touches the original art. And of course, there are many uh, 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 different versions, iterations that the art can take if placed in the hands of an inker that you yourself deem not so compatible with. And so in regards to inkers and embellishers and finishers, Snake Eyes Dead Game, number five, I reached out to some of my friends in the comic book industry and as well as some uh, gr- Hall of Fame great talents, also who are my friends. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have made that call, but some more intimidating than others, none more so than Neil Adams, who you have heard me speak of often on this show because he is the single greatest, uh, I'm saying it with a big smile, single greatest comic book illustrator that ever found his way into a comic book. Neil's um, revolutionary style, I, I spoke about him on my the comic book Mount Rushmore episode which uh, got a fair bit of reaction. But there is no question that when Neil Adams came into comics, he uh, he brought a form of rendering and a form of life drawing, a more detailed, intricate representation of faces. Were they photorealistic in the way that Alex Ross, you can tell that he is painting a photo? Um, no, I, I don't believe they were photorealistic. They were more photorealistic, and there's a difference. As, as, as powerful and as amazing... As, as maybe the best artist prior to him uh, hitting the business, a, a guy like a John, John Buscema who really has no flaws in the way he illustrates figures, faces. Very interesting faces, by the way. All manner of different in- interesting faces. But John Buscema had a, had, a, had a handsome face. His Clint Barton and Steve Rogers and Hank Pym, your, um, your, your, your classic blonde, good-looking superhero guy, which, again, if they're all in Avengers Mansion and their masks are off, you know, it's it's always a little tricky. They tend to draw Hank Pym, blonde, blue-eyed, with a slightly thinner frame and face. Uh, Clint Barton, they they draw with a little, little more square, jawed, and uh, a wider face, a wider face. That's what I mean. And then Steve Rogers is the perfect asymmetrical, you know, um, square-jawed, uh, not too lean, not too strong, um, you know, perfect specimen. 
and 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 this is how things went for years. And it was a joke. I mean, you've got all these these three blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, characters on the Avengers, and and uh, and, and so it's up to the artist to try as best he can to differentiate differentiate that if he can. A guy like Neil Adams came in, and he had a more specific uh, approach to the rendering, to the actual the line art, the feathering, as they used to call it, the feathering. They haven't called it for that for for years. Um, he he introduced cross hatching, but there was nothing that he could not draw ridiculously well with a realistic component. It, he definitely. Um, moved moved the needle far, far, far away from the stuff that Jack Kirby was done, doing, and he became a new flavor. People wanted more of that. As as for me, Neil Adams is the quintessential Superman artist. What came after with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who became the um, the 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 go to house style guy. And when I say house style, DC Comics produced house style guides so that if you were going to take on Superman, you got a guide from uh, uh, profile, front, back faces of any character and 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 also this one went out for people who were doing licensing whether you were going to do a a mug uh, uh, uh an image of a dc character on a on a hot wheels or um put them on on a backpack or a folder um, school supplies and believe me there were tons of this superheroes on super on on, on school supplies was a real mid 70s to mid 80s thing and it sold and you probably could go Find them now at Walmart. There's probably something, some school supply with some Spider-Man on it. That came with a style guide. Uh, Garcia Lopez had been doing all the style guides for DC Comics for a great deal of time, and they, they stood for almost a decade, if not, if not more. But he himself was a uh, a version. A, a He owed some of what he did to Neil Adams. Neil Adams has a ton of imitators, um, people who were influenced by him, and it starts with, uh, you know, Garcia Lopez, Bill Sienkiewicz, Rich Buckler, Mike Nasser, Tom Greinberg, um, uh, Alan Davis, Brian Hitch. These guys are cut from deeply, deeply cut from the Neil Adams, uh, uh, you know, real estate. That 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 is where they emerge from. That's where they built their condo house townhouse on um is a neil adams piece of real estate it, it definitely you can draw the exact tether back to what they're pulling they may not all be pulling the same thing at the same time but they are neil is a great he is a hall of fame he is amazing he is 80 years old and still drawing ridiculously beautiful um images covers stories he did a fantastic four series last year last year during the pandemic neil cannot be stopped neil was my first request on the Snake Eyes uh, Hall of Fame assembly. Because if Neil said yes, then that meant that everyone else would say yes. Because Neil, again, is the greatest of all time and has a resume above and beyond. And again, if you're sitting there and rolling your eyes, please go find Superman versus Muhammad Ali, the most I- iconic, amazing, standalone comic book that I have ever held in my hands. came out in January of 1978, and it has never, ever been surpassed in terms of quality, in terms of craftsmanship, storytelling. Superman, as you have never seen him before, beautiful, um, amazing. Muhammad Ali looks like he jumped into a comic book to act out each and every sequence. And, and, and the storytelling, there are some design pages, some storytelling techniques, some amazing take-your-breath-away 
double page splash pages. And you go, Rob, if you like Neil Adams so much, why would you, why wouldn't you try and emulate him in your career? It's a great question because, and it bears asking because some of these guys I absolutely gush over. I had no intention of ever trying to emulate anything they did because you're not going to be better than Neil Adams. You're not, you're not. There's a lot of Jim Lee knockoffs. Um, for a bit, there was some Rob Liefeld knockoffs in the 90s, thank God, um, that um, kind of fell to the wayside. And if you go, why, why, why thank God? Why thank God it fell to the wayside? Because the, the, they weren't, they didn't, I, I saw a lot of guys trying to pull me off and they and they couldn't. They didn't. They were kind of second rate in regards to, they didn't understand what was going through my mind. They were taking their conclusion from the the last steps, the inking, Um they, they didn't really understand the thought process that I put into it, which helped me separate from imitators and keep my own thing while they moved on to the next target to imitate. There was a bunch of Jim Lee guys, maybe the most imitated of the last 20 years, but I was actually speaking to my friends the other day and we were discussing that there has been no Jim Lee imitators. Um, th- th- there, there are guys who have made their entire career imitating Jim, doing quite frankly, doing it poorly, doing a poor version of Jim. And it's shocking to me that they continue to uh, absolutely buy into that that should be their thing. But they don't know what else to do. They have just completely sold out to drawing in a Jim Lee style. And uh, there was a lot of guys who started that way. But the the with Neil and his dozens of imitators, the only one that really... Uh, set out and, and carved a, a definitive path that was all his own was Bill Sienkiewicz, who started out maybe the best of the Neil kind of influenced guys. He looked like Neil, but not it, it wasn't strained. It was organic. And, and this is when he was doing the original issues of Moon Knight. And you should hunt those down. They're beautiful. They're breathtaking. Bill definitely had a different approach to the page. He, uh, in regards to, it was very energetic he wasn't just drawing like Neil Adams. He was kind of laying out like Bill Sienkiewicz and then drawing like Neil Adams. There's a difference. There's an absolute difference. Guys, other guys along the way were trying to just absolutely give you a um, a, a, a facsimile uh, uh, of Neil Adams as close as they possibly could because that's what made them happy. You have to assume that when they are drawing like that, they choose to draw like that. And they, and they do. They want to accomplish the same thing on their page that they admire when they see on Neil Adams' page. Bill Sienkiewicz moved away quickly after Moon Knight as he went into New Mutants. He took on different influences, different ad agent, ad advertising art. Bob Peak became a huge influence in what he did. Uh, going further, Drew Struzan, some of these other illustrators... But when, when Bob Peake and, and Drew Struzan and the others mixed with what Sienkiewicz was doing, his Neil Adams base, he became Bill Sienkiewicz, the one that we know now and forever, and who's been Bill Sienkiewicz for like the last 35, 40 years. He he was only Neil briefly. So if, if some of these great guys who are very talented can't break away from their Neil obsession, I just avoid that road altogether. Again, some of these guys who broke away, some of these guys who tried to be Jim, couldn't beat Jim. Jim is the author of that look. And whatever he's doing to generate that look is unique to him. When you're just trying to draw Jim, you're not emulate. You're just, again, 
attempting to be a facsimile of that. And again, it is shocking. But in the last 10 years, I can't cite a single in person who has who has who who looks like Jim. It's like the image guys that the, the, at one point very influential, and I could not be more happy about it because it makes what we do more individual, and and you get more of a response when what you are doing is singularly uh, uh, associated with you and your efforts. There has not been an insurgence, a, a new single talent that I look at and I go, oh, he's looking at this image guy. For for the longest time, there was there was such um, robust influence by all of us. Jim had had probably the most imitators. Todd McFarlane had a group of imitators, four or five. They were dedicated to trying to pull him off. At one point, that included Stephen Platt, who moved quickly away from it. But there's an entire, again, issue. I don't know what, what it is with the Moon Knight franchise. But in, uh, in, in Stephen's Moon Knight issues, there was a Spider-Man crossover. And he was, in fact, looking at and, and emulated all of these different Spider-Man art. And he had a little bit of McFarlane in it. Um, um, there was a, a bunch of other guys. I won't get into naming all of them. But Todd had imitators. Jim had imitators. I had imitators. Mark Silvestri had imitators. That's gone. This new crop of mostly also international artists who have been culled um, over several different talent searches and 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 conventions and and again the internet it's easier to, to to now find look survey evaluate talent via Instagram Twitter I've found some great guys online amazing talents that I don't know that I would have bumped into otherwise I, I don't know that I would have bumped into them otherwise so so it's 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 this new world where there's a lot more international names bringing you your talent and that is just what it is it's not it's not this or that it's just it's just what's going on but they from what i see are not looking at jack kirby they're not looking at john Byrne. they're not looking at neil adams and they're not looking at any any of the image guys primarily i would say they're looking at manga whether it is um the anime that is available everywhere nowadays and has been for for the better part of the last six seven years via uh, netflix hulu amazon um, or, or so it's anime or, or all of the, the gazillions amounts of manga. That's what I see as the primary in traditional comic books, in the traditional comic book art. That has become the biggest force. We are, again, a decade away from the image guys having any sort of um, uh, influence whatsoever. And the image guys, it was about a page design, a, a, a way to tell a story. In the same way, getting back to Neil Adams... Neil had a very deliberate style when it wasn't just the drawing. It was the way he had figures coming out of panels. Does this sound familiar? So there may have been page design elements that I would try to emulate from a Neil Adams. But I would never try to be Neil Adams because I'm never going to be anything but a shadow of him at my very best effort of trying to emulate him. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to call him and ask him to provide embellishment and finishes over my issue of Snake Eyes Dead Game. Just one page, except when I called Neil, he said, no, 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 I won't do a page. I'll do two pages. I will do two pages. Give me the best spread in the book. And I, I did. I tried to li live up to that. I gave Neil what I viewed as the best double-page spread in Snake Eyes Dead Game so that he could have the most fun. I told everybody, whether it was Neil Adams or Philip Tan or Wills Portacio or Jerry Ordway or Carl Kiesel or Dan Panosian or Dan Frega, and there are so many names, Ed Pisker, Jim Rug, 
Eric Kennedy, Tom Schioli, Carl Kersel. I'm going to leave somebody out. I don't mean to. Corey Hampshire, Chance Wolf. I'm trying to grab all of you. Paul Scott. Paul Scott came in and gave us some pages. Here's the deal. The, the, the thing is, I wanted everybody to have fun. I said, here's my pencil page. Um, I pencil very tightly, but don't let that intimidate you. Do whatever you want. Interpret it. Take it in whatever rendering fashion. Um, do whatever extra that you want to add to this. Carl Allstetter is an anchor on this issue. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and, and the results were fantastic. It was just such a blast. Neil was among the first, maybe the second, I think Wolf's Protasio got at me his page first, then Neil Adams immediately. And it was breathtaking. And he just embellished and inked the crap out of me. It's beautiful. The thing is, uh, when I would sit next to Neil, it shows uh, for the last, it started in 2014 where I really started pulling up a chair next to Neil and picking his brain about the old days. And it's like, he must have been like, oh my gosh, here comes life again. He's obsessed with the 70s. He's obsessed with the, the Bronze Age of comics, which I am. There's no, 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 absolutely no denying that fact. I would go and I'd say, hey, I love when you inked Gil Kane or I love when you inked Jack Kirby and I love when you inked uh, John Buscema. And he's like, Rob, I am everybody's best inker they ever had. Make no doubt about it. It was said with such amazing bravado, but it was 100% true. I have um, been trying to hunt down John Buscema, uh, Neil Adams inked Tarzan pages, Conan pages, Gil Kane Conan pages that Neil inked. They're, they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. The mishmash of the two styles just makes up this amazing result. It, it, they, they, they kind of merge and become a different artist. And that's what can happen with different embellishers and different finishers. And certainly, over a period of time, it's been debated who was so-and-so's best inker. In the case of somebody like a John Byrne, I will always be of the camp. Now, as I have evolved, as I have grown up and I have understood that Terry Austin, who inked him on his entire X-Men run with the, with the exception of, of a, of a fill-in or two, but he inked almost 30 issues worth of material over John Byrne. And that material, the two of them together made the best version of each other. And and do I like Burn Austin more than I like Burn? I do. I do. I that 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 is my favorite. But do I also love when Dan Green inked John Byrne and when Carl Kiesel inked Dan uh, John Byrne and when Dick Giordano and Gene Day? Yes. And I have I have pages from all of those artists. But my preference is when Terry Austin inked him. I like the way that looked. The best. That was the best collaboration. One artist coming on top of another artist. I don't have a particular favorite in this Snake Eyes Dead game number five. But the names I gave you, it was interesting to see what they all brought to inking over my pencils. And the reason I'm telling you this is, again, it really serves as a great example of what an embellishment and a finisher and an inker can bring to the work that you're doing. So they're always going to, maybe they, they're always going to bring something unique to you. Whether it's the thicker outline of the figure, they, they, they just go thicker. The contours that they, of the shoulder, the bicep, the tricep, the thigh, the outer lines, that that's going to be maybe different. Well, it's going to be different every time. Thicker, thinner, then, then a different style of rendering. They're going to see that cross-hatching and maybe do their own improvisational take on what you're trying to attempt. So 28 pages of Snake Eyes Dead Game. Kevin freaking Eastman. Kevin, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle God himself, Eastman, came on board, inked a, 
a, a page in the book that is just breathtaking. He brought it in a way that I was just not quite um, prepared for. It is so beautiful. He went full board. His brilliant kind of stippling style that he does, which is uh, just these short uh, divots, these short ink uh, divots that he collects together. It's kind of a stippling style. It, it, it I first saw it um, with Barry Windsor Smith in my youth, uh, especially when he did Conan Red Nails. And then later on, I saw Mobius, uh, the, the, the amazing international artist Mobius, uh, uh, do the, the exact style of stippling. And Kevin has made it his own version of that thing. And, and I, I gave him a, a bold action page and he just, oh, he knocked it out of the park. Neil Adams, Kevin Eastman, Wills Portacio, um, Jerry Ordway, one of the best embellishers, inkers that ever lived. Jerry has done, I mean, everyone Jerry touches looks magnificent. And he gave me that same amazing polish. Carl Kiesel and I from Hawk and Dove have not jammed, have not jammed together. In, in over 30 years. So for him to ink this page and, 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 and contribute and, 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 and be a part of this project was just absolutely phenomenal. I could not be more uh, humbled uh, that Carl jumped on and helped out and, 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 and his page is beautiful. It is so beautiful. You guys, this is such a special project. It's coming out at the time that you listen to this podcast. It'll have been out It'll have been, it'll, it'll be arriving if you find this podcast years later. Snake Eyes, Dead Came, Issue 5. It was a great miniseries. I wanted to go out showcasing amazing talent and having a different collaboration on every page. Now, I will tell you that if maybe the color, and I have a brilliant color artist, Federico Blee, just laid down the most amazing hues and colors, and it was just, uh, the book is, is gorgeous. But the line art, in today's world, gets somewhat obscured. Ryan Otley, Ryan Invincible, Spider-Man, Hulk Otley, crushed it on a double page for me. It is amazing. It is amazing. Here's the deal. The line art, you're going to see all of it in a declassified edition, but we just do the black and white line art. And I think you're going to dig it. I hope you dig it. I, I really hope you dig it. That's going to come out in the fall. But I, uh, I just wanted to tell you guys that, again, I was really uh, embodying so much of my... Uh, fan memories and, and fan instincts and, and fan admiration when I would see again a John Buscema collaborate with another great and I'm gonna and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this the first time I ever like really understood that two artists make a different artist there is an X-Men annual I think it's X-Men annual number three it's drawn by George Perez it's inked by Terry Austin the entirety of it it's a double-sized X-Men Adventure, they go to a different dimension. There's a, the, the, there's kind of like the space barbarian named Archon. It is, I could not recommend this more highly. It is brilliant. It is amazing. But, but, and here's the big but. There was one page in that book that always stood out to me. It's in the latter, latter section of the book, the latter third of the book. And uh, it is just a, it, it's a great page. The X-Men are flying by. Colossus uh, is on a dragon. And down below, Wolverine is clashing with these kind of space barbarians. And the page immediately attracts your eye as like, like it was a hard stop, like a screech of the tires kind of moment. You go, what's up here? What's going on? That isn't inked by Terry Austin. It's a heavier line. It's, it's a more brush line. There's less little renderings. 
that, that Terry does. And Terry's super, super crisp, thick to thin lines ratio, the way he assembles his crispness, because that's, that's, I think, the number one thing about Terry. The stuff looks so crisp. This wasn't that. One single page in that annual. One single page. And it kind of looked like it wasn't drawn by George Perez. Except it was. But what I was seeing, especially the Colossus and a little piece of the Wolverine page, it looked like another artist altogether. It looked like John Byrne. In fact, it turns out, in an interview years later, Terry Austin would confirm that he was at a comic convention and he handed a page to John Byrne and said, you've been so much a part of this franchise and why we're here now and why Marvel's even doing this annual. I don't want you to not be involved. Would you ink a page for the annual over George Perez? And John Byrne said, I'd be happy to. So John Byrne inked that page that I'm describing over George Perez. George Perez did absolutely pencil it, but it's the one page in the entire book Terry Austin doesn't ink. And you'll notice it immediately, especially with the finer... Um, printing that they have now on that really slick white paper as opposed to the grainier news, newsprint that I experienced. And you go, wow, John Byrne, George Perez. This is what it looks like when, when John inks George. Later on in the 80s, over at DC, George would actually ink an entire story over John Byrne. And it was cool to see the script flip. And now John, John is being inked by George. But regardless, all of this stuff, the embellisher... The finisher, the inker sometimes come together and they create a different style. Somebody like a Philip Tan took my page. He added one other layer of depth to it with silhouettes on top of what I already put, which pushed the camera back even further, adding even more depth to the bottom panel. But the top panel, I mean, it's, it's awesome. Philip is so talented. He's so ridiculously, amazingly talented that it was such a pleasure to see him apply his energy and his style on top of my pencils. And that's what it's all about. These, this merger of style, this merger of um, different sensibilities, different instincts. What what would an artist that looks at that arm with that rendering, how would they how would they change that? Uh, I, I, again, as, as I've said, the, the most amazing array of talent I was able to assemble for this giant finale. It's coming out. It is really an exercise in the art of comics. Getting Neil Adams to ink over me, Kevin Eastman to ink over me, Wills Portacio, Eric Kennedy, Carl Kiesel, Carl Kerschel, Jerry Orley, all the guys that I mentioned. Just a phenomenal experience. It made it so rich and it made it so fun and it was the perfect capper to a, a childhood dream of, of doing G.I. Joe, which I grew up with way before The Real American Hero. Yes, there was G.I. Joe's before The Real American Hero. We've covered it here on the show in the licensing episodes. It started with the adventure team for my generation in the 70s. And then when that didn't quite click because they were at the end of really being a military branded toy with Vietnam, they decided to scale back the war military aspect and the G.I. Joes in 1974 to 1977 were adventure team and then they were gone. And when they came back in the 80s as the real American hero with Duke and Scarlet and Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes and Roadblock, it was a whole new baby. But it was so, so amazingly uh, rewarding to do this G.I. Joe adventure. So I had to had to go off with a bang and instead of giving some other gimmick, my gimmick was I brought more talent to the dance and it was so fun because it was great to see them alter, embellish, um, and enhance my own storytelling and work. Again, I'm 
Early in my career, I couldn't have done this. I was too invested in seeing pure Rob Liefeld. What does pure Rob Liefeld look like on the page? I was trying to find myself. I was trying to find my identity. If I made a specific mark, I wanted that specific mark to find its way through. It's why I ultimately started inking my own work three years into my career. Both Tom McFarlane and myself decided we would be our best inkers. And eventually Eric Larson followed suit. And, and, and because we, the marks that we were making, we wanted those specific marks to be seen, to be, to make it to print, not to be obscured. There are all sorts of nightmare anchor penciler scenarios throughout the history of comic books. And, and, and I tried to, um, get out of business with an anchor as fast as I could when I didn't like what they were bringing to the dance. I didn't like how they were interpreting my lines, whether it was too sloppy, too rough, not as crisp, not as, um, not adhering to what I wanted. That's what I wanted in my youth. I wanted to find who I was. I wanted to market who I was. I wanted to establish the Rob Liefeld look. So I couldn't have done this with any sort of confidence um, 34 years ago. And now, as I'm an older guy, I love seeing people jam on what I do. I know what I do. I know what I bring to the dance. So it's fun to see what they put on top. And you're going to get a lot of that when Snake Eyes comes out. Uh, Snake Eyes 5, Dead Game. Uh, Check it out if you like the whole thing. The trade paperback's coming out in the fall. Go get the back issues. If you dig it, check out G.I. Joe, period. It is so fun. It is such a great franchise over the years. I'm so happy that I contributed. And I did so by bringing the very best that comic book, the, the very best embellishing, inking, um, uh, finishing uh, uh, talent that there is in comics. Then and now. I mean, eight, Neil is 80. Just remember, he's 80. An 80-year-old man kicked my ass on that page, brought it. He absolutely showed up and delivered and it's awesome. And the entire book is awesome. And I can't wait for you to get it and, and, and to see how the collaborations were forged and the results, um, that, that we're going to give you in those pages. So that's my extended hot topic, little, little bit of self promo there, but a lot of embellishment, finishing, inking talk. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you seek it out. And, uh, and, and, and it's out, it's out now. And again, it, by the time you listen to this, it'll be out. So check that out. Snake Eyes, Dead Game 5, huge all-star uh, cast of embellishers, finishers, and inkers that jump on board and, and help me out. And I am really happy with the final product, and I hope you are too. So in regards to fandom, fandom is what we're going to discuss today. And it's not going to be etiquette of fandom. I know I alluded to that, but that's not, you know, that's, the etiquette is really not what interests me. It's the trends in fandom. Remember, fan, fan, fandom, fan comes from fanatic. The word fanatic. We're all fanatics. I'm a fanatic about comic books, about my NBA team, the Lakers, about my NFL team, the Rams. I've, 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 I've you know, we're all fans of something and it derives from fanatic and sometimes that delves into a weird aspect of fan behavior. I've been doing this 34 years, closing in on 35 years. So I've had a lot of interactions over the years. The fan interactions that I've experienced over a three-decade period, almost three and a half decades, has um, has I, I've watched fandom of all sorts grow. Star Wars fandom, uh, you know, Pokemon fandom over the last twenty years, especially given that my kids are into it. I, I've watched you know Lord of the Rings fandom. I, I've watched comic book fandom and all the different fiefdoms and kingdoms within comic books. But the interesting thing that I'm going to talk about with fandom today and my observations on this, my because really 
you know, every time that we enter into the world of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform, some message board, all of the different emails that are now circulating, you are engaging in some sort of uh, fan experience because everybody is online talking to everybody online, right? So, so this is this is how it, it, it it's been breaking down, and you know I've talked about my own experience with Twitter and how when I first experienced Twitter, I thought, oh my gosh, it's like that's my own talk radio. I'll be a shock jock. I'll you know say things, put facts and figures. Always trying kind of what I do with the podcast. Here. I was a little more uh, aggressive and obnoxious in the early days. Uh, giving the the receipts and the knowledge that I had, and the one thing that that it has never kind of gone over is tone. You can't do tone uh, on on social media. It's hard. It, I I can say um, no, I haven't picked that up yet, which is how I would say. Someone will read it. No, I haven't picked that up with which immediate. I haven't picked that up yet, which it, it, you know. Uh, injects a negative to, to what I'm saying when it's really just a casual, like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not following that. You know, um, somebody asked me today, what well, you need to weigh in on Neil Gaiman. They, they, they listened to the first part of our, you know, uh, British, the, the, the bring on the Brits, the, uh, the, the, the beginning of the, the British rivalries that made its way over here to the American shores. And I, I started where it started with me, which is Alan Moore. And then by the end, I was talking about Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. And I said, there'd be a part two. And in part two, you'll get Mark Miller and Garth Ennis and, 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 and we'll expand this a little more and then add the Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Garth Ennis, Warren Ellis, you know, rivalries, whatever they are. But, uh, I didn't mention Neil Gaiman because I haven't read anything by Neil Gaiman. So said, someone said, you know, will you speak of Neil Gaiman? And I said, I would have to read a single piece of his work. And that's what I meant. Like, I don't feel comfortable talking about Neil Gaiman, Gaiman, uh, because I have not participated in his work. It would not that would be weird to me. And uh, I've I've read the one issue of Spawn in the in the Angela miniseries that he did for Todd back when Todd owned Angela. And then I think you know Neil then won Angela in a lawsuit from Todd and took them took Angela to Marvel. And I if if he wrote something. For Marvel with those characters, I haven't really read that too. And I'm, you know, it's just really, I haven't experienced his work. But if I say, hey, I haven't experienced his work in a casual matter, someone will, will inject, I haven't experienced it. Like, yeah, I haven't experienced that work. It, they, they, there's just an, a default setting that a segment has on making something seem positive, worse than it is. And I've really tried to dial down my own rhetoric given that there is a new fan base. And this is what I'm here to talk about. I believe there's three, three categories of fans right now that are all over the place. And there is your reader fan, okay? Still reads comics. Still buys comics to read them. Participates somewhat in the comic book experience, sharing what they've read online, in forums, in groups. Call it, so they're, they're the readers. They're there every Wednesday, every weekend to buy their comics. Group number two 
is the collector. The collector doesn't so much as crack the comic book. The collector is tracking through the apps, through the word on, on the street of what's hot. And uh, there's all these different collector apps. I've downloaded them. I've participated in some of them. They are treating the comic book experience like stocks and bonds. This hot cover, this hot variant. Um, the, the websites, some of them are trafficking in letting you know what's going to get giant media attention when most of it doesn't get giant media attention month in, week out, week in, week out. Okay. And they are driving collectors. Rare covers, one in 25, one in 50, one in 100. I have Daredevil, uh, sorry, <laughs> Deadpool issues that have one in uh, 100 variants, one in 500 variants. Okay, I know some comics had one in 1,000. So the collectors, now they are paying a lot of bills for a lot of retailers. Do not kid yourself. They've always been here. I consider myself a collector fan as well as a reader fan. But I have also become exhausted and had to step off that I need to have this every week uh, as a result of the... At one point, you just go, they're not all paying off in the way that, you know, was promised. And there is an excitement in being the person that obtains that difficult-to-obtain comic book. And we are all driven by it. Did you get that rare blah, blah, blah? Whatever comic, they've had a rare blah, blah, blah recently. If it's Turtles, if it's Batman, if it's X-Men, okay? If it's some independent, if it's a Power Rangers comic. But the collector shows up. And their motive is to get the nicest copy in the nicest condition, maybe the most copies in the nicest condition that they can possibly get. And if there's a hard-to-obtain variant, they will pay for it. They will get it. They will try and take it off the board early. And in some cases, they will buy it late. Let's talk about Fortnite. Batman Fortnite came out a few months ago. And one of the members of the creative team was just tooting the horn on what an important book this was going to be, but it was never going to be an important book. The book literally existed. It was licensed. Did you know this? Licensed by Fortnite to DC Comics. DC was the rental shop. Fortnite had talked to both Marvel and DC. DC gave them, uh, w was able to facilitate the demands that Fortnite had. That Fortnite would, would license their Fortnite world ideas environments to this DC Comics universe wherein DC could have Batman running through Fortnite, encountering different Batman characters, eventually issue three, Snake Eyes from the Hasbro world because Hasbro is licensing their Snake Eyes, their G.I. Joe characters into the game. So it was thought, well, this would be a nice merger, perfect blend, okay? So DC won the Fortnite license and they would go on to create the Batman Fortnite comic book, which was there too as a, maybe it was the 12th, maybe it was the 10th Batman comic of that month. This is just a fact. These are just facts, okay? And and given that they would uh, be licensing this, they, licensing Fortnite to DC, well, what is part of the uh, motivation for DC to do this? Well, to sell more units, which they split and pay to. And Fortnite, Fortnite doesn't do this for free. Fortnite is a giant gaming platform. Your kids have played 
Fortnite. Your kids are playing Fortnite right now. You're playing Fortnite or maybe logged in or out before or after you're listening to this podcast. My sons have played Fortnite as as recently as in the last few months. My my buddies who have young younger kids in the 9s, 10s, 11s, 12s are playing Fortnite at a greater rate than it has been played in the past. Skins, okay? In the in the pandemic, Deadpool, Cable, Domino all became playable skins. X-Force, Deadpool was the first Marvel character to enter Fortnite. I've lived it. I I saw it. It 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 washed over me. It was a huge like, whoa. It generated tons of excitement. They sold tons of skins. Whatever that split between whatever Marvel negotiated. Whenever whenever you were buying that skin, Marvel got a chunk of that money. Okay, skins are part of the game. Skins have driven Fortnite from the beginning. So what did the Batman Fortnite number one have? A full Harley Quinn skin. Not just a costume, the character of Harley Quinn. You had to get that comic to get that code. Advance buzz on the book was dead until people realized, oh my gosh, two weeks to go. The book's about to hit. They they, they, they tried to get as much additional motivation for you to order it as possible, get the word out. And the day that book hit, it was sold out and copies were going for 50, 60 bucks. My retailer started them off at $20 for people who hadn't ordered it. And again, he knows you're coming into my, I've never seen you, mom, soccer mom, sports mom, who wants it for Billy. And so you're not coming here to buy. You're not, you're, you're not coming to take this copy that I have, these remaining copies, these few remaining copies I have for my comic book clientele. You want to take them away just to get that skin for your kid and I'm never going to see you again. They marked it up, some 15, some 20, some 30. By the end of the day, at some of the venues, and especially on eBay, because that's what they're watching, they're watching eBay to justify their price. It was going for as high as 60 bucks. That's over. That ended. Two, three, four, they didn't generate anywhere near the same amount. Now, there's a final issue. Maybe it's out already. I haven't tracked it that close, but I know it gives like a Batman robot suit. And, and maybe that will generate what issue one did. But the collector drove that, not the reader, the collector, and not even the collector... For the comic, they didn't want it for anything in the comic. They wanted it for the skin. That was borne out by the drop-off on 2, 3, and 4, which had weapons. There was still Fortnite stuff in there. But I'm using this to really drive home the collector. The collector is ready to grab those copies and flip them immediately. We could call the collector a flipper. In some, Not all collectors are flippers, but flippers are collectors because they're collecting to make that three to five dollar purchase the cheaper they can get it the higher they can flip it on facebook there's tons of groups it's never been more profitable than to be part of a facebook group and to sell in a facebook group because the um ebay add-ons have become just bone crushing to some of these people who are trying to make their living selling comic books and they have gathered in groups where claims are met and claims don't have the same surcharges that eBay is going to put on top of you. All those percentages, the the listing percentage, the relisting percentage, the closing percentage of the sale. eBay, by being as vast and powerful and big as they are, has obviously taken a giant uh, investment in what you're selling. And they want as much of it as they possibly can. It's not going to stop. They're going to keep increasing, 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 okay? So Facebook groups selling... 90s comics, 70s comics, Silver Age, Bronze Age, Modern Age, Copper, whatever they're calling it now. Those will pop. I, I watch my friends. They go to the garage sales. They document their 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 adventures as they go and they get these books. 
and they, 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 it's all based on pricing and, and what's this guy asking and talking this guy down at the garage sale and talking this guy. And I've got Chuck Rosansky, no less, who owns Mile High Comics, who's had ads in the comic books since I was a young boy, since I cracked open my comics. Mile High Comics, the greatest collection of comics ever in Denver, in Colorado. And I've done awesome signings with Chuck and, and his store is amazing and it is a it really is a comic book like uh, monument. It's a it's a it's a landmark when you go to Mile High Comics in, in, in Colorado and, and visit the mothership and see all the stuff that Chuck has had. But he is online. The reason I'm bringing up he is online on Facebook, on social media, documenting his journeys across America with his big rig trucks, with his shipping, buying thousands upon thousands upon thousands. By the end of the year, it could be a million comic books that he's bought from different collections. And then, of course, turning around and putting them in Facebook groups. And these Facebook groups, again, are <clears throat> very manageable, much more so than, than, than what's going on in eBay. And they're, they're, they're making more per yield. Now, it's an honor system, so you have to get approved to get into this group. And man, if you break that trust, you're out of the group. So therefore, you can't buy again. That's their way of policing in the same way that eBay controls the PayPal and the or whatever the the the, the means of payment that they exert control over the seller and the buyer and the influence. So so collectors are huge. They are driving a significant portion of the market, more so I would say now than ever before. And I include the period of the Spider-Man 2.8 million, the X-Force 5 million, the the uh, the X Men seven point eight million. Okay, that 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 more so than then. I believe collectors are affecting the market right now. So you got reader fans who just want to read this stuff. Then you got the collectors. Okay, and I got to be honest, the collectors might be the more reliable part of our fandom. How can you say that, Liefeld? Because when has not buying for two dollars and selling for five? When has that not been in vogue? Okay. That's going to continue. There's never going to be that flipper mentality that, 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 that isn't a positive for the flipper. It may change. You know, maybe you buy it for three and you sell it for 30 and that's the best day possible. And maybe you have 10 of those, okay? But like I said, it's never going to be out of style to buy for $2 and sell for five or six. That is a absolute diehard uh, uh, a dedicated aspect of this hobby, this collecting, this, this business that we're in. And there is a hobby aspect to it. Don't kid yourself. Why are you getting a bag and a board to begin with? When I show my spinner rack on social media, people go, get those off the spinner rack. They're not in bags and boards. They weren't in bags and boards when I bought them. Therefore, they will not be in bags and boards. Now, I want reader copies on my spinner rack because I want the visual of how it looked when I was a kid. Yes, of course, they could all stand to be in bags and boards. <clears throat> excuse me, but I am not going to go that route. Not on my spinner rack, but in my collections, in my long boxes, in my short boxes, I have mylars. I, I mean, I, I've got, you know, the nicest bags and boards. I, I, I've spent most of the last year replenishing my collection, making sure they're in, in new bags, new boards, and a certain elite group I wanted to see in those shiny, crispy mylars. And, and that's what I did. And obviously, there's the CGC of it all. That's the ultimate. That's why the highest grade copies want to be obtained. And again, we talked about it here not too long ago. X-Men, X-Men number one on the closing price with all the additional percentages and the, and the percentage to the, to, the, to the auction house. It was 802,000 copies for a 9-6 X-Men number one from 1963. An X-Men number one from 1963. Unsigned, but a 9.6 CGC. 
$802,000. That's some big scratch, okay? So the collectors are always there. They're there every week looking for something that they can buy that they can either hoard and save for a greater upgrade. If you had copies of Youngblood 2 this time last summer, those went to 20 30 bucks, graded $200, $300 overnight because Mark Guggenheim was assigned, was 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 featured as the screenwriter. And because of his great name in the business and his uh, huge success with Arrow, people went all in. They loved it. They loved it. They loved it. A giant comic book showrunner of a hugely respected show was going to write my character profit. And I saw those boxes of Youngblood 2s go from $2 to 20 to 30 to if you had them graded to 300 Okay? That is the collector mentality. They love it. They got in years ago. They're not going anywhere. They want to see that stuff accrue. That's good accrual on their investments. Some are fast flippers. Some are longtime investors. They're going nowhere. They're staying. And they may find interest with whatever you're putting out as a store owner or as a publisher on any given Wednesday. You never know. The minute supply and demand flip and there's not enough to supply to meet the demand you are in that collector sweet spot. They're going nowhere. That They are part of fandom because they post on fan forums. They post on social media showing what they have. Do you want it? Do you want to buy it? Here it is. Okay, They're a part of fandom. They're less interested in the guts, and I have joked that we are heading towards a world where it's just covers because, again, covers and the publishers have leaned into this so heavily because... They know that base is going nowhere. They know that that collector base will always be there to get that 1 in 10, 1 in 25, 1 in 50 variant of whatever uh, uh, comic book that you are putting out. That, that, and, it's, and it's offered in advance. This will be a 1 in 100 by Marvel. That means you got to buy 100 copies to get one. Okay? You know, so, so, so they are leaning all the way into this and that they know that there's buyers. And they're a part. So I got the readers, I got the collectors. What's the third part of the three-headed monster that is fandom right now? It's the lapsed, the old time. They only want to reread the stuff that they grew up with and they love. And they'll buy it in new formats and they'll maybe go and buy a new edition of it. A new, not necessarily a new printing, but a new crispier copy, a better graded copy, or, you know, a better raw copy. I see them. I talk to them. They have forums. All they want to talk about is what they loved. I'm part of those forums. I can talk 70s comics till the cows come home. I can talk 80s comics. I can talk 90s comics. The thing I'm least interested in is the 2000s comics. The 2000s to present interest me the least. There's the my least amount of satisfaction in the comic book industry is the period we are in now. I started working in comics in 1987, so I was 13 years prior to the 2000s. I helped define with my peer group. That's it's undeniable. The '90s, huge swell. It was exciting. It was a free for all. Was there a ton of shit and garbage? Yes, but there were some true gems in there. The 2000s have become more corporate minded. I am less interested in the corporate mindedness of the of, of much of the product that is put out. These extensive multi pronged crossovers that a guy like Dan DiDio just loved. And and, 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 and and we're coming up on the on the on the uh, uh, we're, we're coming up on the the uh, 
multi, uh, what do you call it, uh, anniversary, the t decade of the new 52. Well, you know what? There's not much to discuss there. It didn't really work out. It was rebooted. <sighs> Good God. Five, six years later, the new 52. But that, that initiative was a corporate-minded initiative to take, as we've talked about. I did a new 52 podcast. I should really just reboot it when the time comes so that, that, that and get, get the link out there again so that you guys um, can, can, can remember that this was a corporate-minded event where the deal was trying to take the number one status away from Marvel, move things into the DC status for good, become the ultimate corporate, um, you know, good puppy, that they would pet him and say, good puppy, you did good by DC. Wow, I can't believe we're number one, except, wait, what do you mean we're not number one anymore? Which is what happened. It didn't last. It was two and a half months and that was it. And Marvel then took control again of the market as they have so often done and dominated. But uh, corporate-minded comics, which is how I would... We are in the era still of the corporate-minded comics. And there is more of a investment to adhere the comics and make sure they reflect more of what's going on in the media representation, whether it is the streaming shows or whether it is the films. The lapsed collector wants to just buy their era over and over and over and over and over again. They want Ramita's Spider-Man. They want Burns' X-Men. They want Perez's Avengers, Perez's Titans, Perez's Justice League. They want Jim Starlin's cosmic stuff. They want Frank Miller's Daredevil, okay? They want Jack Kirby's Thor, okay? They want John Buscema's Conan. So so, so, so this, is, this is a fan. They're out there. They talk, and they openly talk to me. And I know it because sometimes there are events online that trigger this larger um, discussion. And one happened to me recently, which was the 30th anniversary of X-Force. We celebrated it. It was celebrated the day of the 30th anniversary of X-Force. It was June 25th, 1991. So on June 25th, 2021, Marvel announced that I was doing a 30th anniversary X-Force project. I haven't been away from X-Force for 30 years. I did an X-Force miniseries in 2005. It was uh, six issues. It was great. It was great fun. Uh, I've 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 done you know I created Lady Deadpool in two thousand nine. Deadpool Corn twenty ten. Okay, I I've done ca numerous Cable and Deadpool covers. I did Deadpool, Bad Blood. The only time Deadpool charted number one was in this twenty five dollar graphic novel. His entire career, he had never charted as the number one anything, but he was number one in this Deadpool Bad Blood graphic novel that I did in twenty seventeen. I did Major X, which was an offshoot of X-Force that, that and, and Deadpool, a new concept, had Cable, Shatterstar, everybody in it. I did that in 2019. Every single issue sold out. Every single issue went back to press. There was a second printing or a third print. We added an issue because it was so well-received. And, uh, and and then I've been doing these 30th Deadpool covers. So just, just, just to say, I, I haven't gone far away. I've been nearby. I've been close by. But we announced it. But to a certain segment of fans... On Twitter, on social media, they lost their shit. They lost their shit. Why are you celebrating this? You know, this was a different era. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that X-Force sold 5 million copies, okay? They didn't want to celebrate that. That wasn't their era. And this, as I pivot away quickly, reminds me, again, I have two sons. They played travel ball. They played a lot of sports. They played a lot of basketball. Basketball in Southern California is ruthlessly, ruthlessly competitive. As competitive as I'm sure it is in Alabama, in Idaho, in Montana, but out in Southern California, the, the lights are a little brighter. The competition may be a little hotter. And um, one of my sons played for the Compton Magic, one of the elite 
travel ball teams. My young son, he is ridiculously gifted in that travel ball team. They did you didn't you don't pay into the travel ball team. They give you everything for free. The the the, the free Adidas shoes, all Adidas gear, all Adidas accessories. You play to you know to be as competitive as possible, and 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 if you don't uh, make the tryout, you know you can't buy your way onto the team. The whole thing is they control the entire product. So I went to a lot of venues. I went to a lot of sporting, uh, really competitive sporting all throughout the LA, San Diego, Orange County area for the better part of six, seven years with my boys. Why am I telling you this? My kids know basketball. They know their sports. Some kind, sometimes you guys, oh, life, let's talk in sports. I have to talk sports. It is, it is so uh, uh, familiar with what is, go, goes on in comics. It's, it, they're both competitive. They're both are ridiculously competitive, just like the entertainment industry. I, I put movies and television and all that in there too. But, but with this, my sons have, have, have come to tell me, one of them at least, that Michael Jordan, he's made a proclamation, even after seeing The Last Dance, that Michael Jordan could not hang with today's NBA, All-Stars, NBA athletes. He doesn't think that Michael Jordan was as athletic as fill in the blank, um, and and uh, I just I, I I've seen it all. I, I I watched Magic Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. I watched them, you know, dominate a decade, uh, five rings, eight finals appearances. I mean, I, then I watched Michael Jordan kind of show them the exit in that era, and I hated Michael Jordan for a while, but I never denied how good, competitive, and made basically how athletic and talented he was. But my son and his friends want their generation to be the one that matters the most. And why wouldn't they? They want their own. They It's this ownership. They don't want to celebrate dads, sports guys, your sports guys if you're a dad. They want their own stars. And they are willing to just completely demolish the memory of what you held dear in order to have theirs enhanced have theirs seem more special because those accomplishments can't be repeated. Michael Jordan, when Kobe and Shaq won three in a row, that hadn't been done since Jordan did his three and three, which is a phenomenal speed in his uh, phenomenal feat in the history of sports. To win, to win back to back is is difficult. That target grows on you. The comp- competition grows. People want to take you down harder, faster. Jordan did three and three in his two runs, six total. My favorite player of all time, Kobe Bryant, fell short. He has five rings, not six. He had one three-peat, not two. Guys who are trying to gain that now, LeBron James, you know, LeBron, if he wins again, you know, he'll 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 add a he'll add a fifth, he'll tie Kobe. Okay, but it'll be one back from Jordan, but it doesn't matter. Neither Kobe nor LeBron nor anyone else, Kevin Durant, can do three and three. They're running out of time. The time is, is gone. It'll have to be somebody new who tries that. It's going to be so difficult. Three consecutive years followed by a gap and then three consecutive years of winning at the top level. But my son will tell me that this Michael Jordan could not compete with LeBron James, you know, Kevin Durant, uh, just all of today's stars. Not as talented as. Not as talented as. He's not, his, the competition wasn't as good. He's downgraded also the other thing that that generation does is the, the, the Gary Payton Sonics wasn't, weren't that good. The, the, the Utah Jazz weren't that good. Um, you know, Magic's Lakers weren't that good. All of these incredible teams that Michael Jordan had to beat, no, much less the Indiana Pacers, the, the Detroit Bad Boy Pistons, the New York Knicks, they've downgraded it all. Basketball wasn't that good, I hear, time and again. And those guys weren't as talented as today's guys, which is, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion. But in comic books, back to comic books, 
I have now watched. I did not think I would live to see our own achievements and records be questioned and the attempt to have our achievements stripped from us because a generation does not like them. That's it. That's it. And to make matters worse, a well-known writer wades into this argument that day, June 25th, 2021, when X-Force is being celebrated. X-Force selling 5 million copies is documented by the publisher. It is documented by the distributor, both distributors who distributed them, Capital and Diamond. It is documented by the magazines that were covering it at the time. It is documented by all of the comic book history books. I have five to six coffee table books that I did not publish. Four of them were published by Marvel Comics. Each of them denote the multi-millions, the five million sales achievement of X-Force. Okay? It happened. My check, my royalties were derived from five million sales. Then it became, well, those didn't all make it home to him. To, to, to people's, you know, houses. Well, not every seat in the theater is packed, you know, on an opening weekend when whatever movie breaks a record, okay? The movie house may have 300 seats. It may have 40 seats. Just because it didn't, every seat didn't get sold doesn't mean it wasn't a blockbuster success. This notion that every comic book has to follow the person home and be in their collection to register that sale. No, that's not the way the, the direct market works. There is no returns. You ordered it, you owned it. That shop owned it, it was sold. The money was paid to Marvel and to Diamond and they split it and then I got my cut. And that's how it's been for every comic all the time. And uh, there was a well-known writer, and I'm not going to say his name, it's not worth it, wanders in to openly challenge and say this didn't happen. And then he, he joins with another kind of lesser known comic book talent but has, who's been around. And the two of them start, and I'm added. They include me on Twitter by adding me. Not talking about, they at me. Include me and say, that's not true. You're not even in the top 10 best-selling comics of all time when I am the second best-selling comic book of all time. I am now watching as a peer of mine has openly on social media challenged me to say that that achievement that you are claiming is not true. And I have this Google bullshit that I pulled up from some Google bullshit site to prove it. And that Google bullshit site doesn't list like multi-million sellers. Image Year One, Spawn, Youngblood, Wildcats, nothing but million sellers. Not on the list. I had a prominent figure in comics who who is, I, again, I won't mention the name, texted me during this and said, this guy is a fool. He is not even including the image era sales. And this isn't a guy who is, he's not a talent. He didn't work at image. He doesn't have one of those comics I just mentioned. That would be incredibly, you know, agenda filled. This is somebody outside, a business person who said, this guy's crazy. He is not even accounting for all of the 90s Image launched the, the 1992, which we're going to celebrate. That's going to get that, that 30th anniversary. And I can't wait till we celebrate each of those milestones. And this joker comes on and, to challenge us. And you go, what is... Because that's what it is. You, you're, just, you're just taking the part of the, the court joker, the court jester. You're playing the part of a fool. And he did this openly, included others. And then not only... I was not just opposing it with facts and figures pulling facts and figures, which is all that matters, historical sales data, recorded, 
historical sales data to all I could do was say this didn't happen. That, that, that your assertion is wrong. That is what didn't happen. These sales figures did happen. Your assertions are wrong. They're erroneous and it's irresponsible. Didn't back down 24 hour cycle. Doesn't back down. Tries to continue to gather an opinion. Starts to uh, uh, then then print opinion pieces about that every comic book sold. Well, well, this writer could not sustain that in his own career. Not every copy that this person wrote did not go into people's collections. It did not go back into their... The store still has overages of everything and every comic ever sold, okay? To, to, to act as if we don't live in a world where there's reorders. Once you sell out, you get another one. You can order another one until they just say, no, we're not. Then nowadays, they go back to press immediately. And then those don't get bought, okay? X-Force number one sold out. Five million copies sold out to the tune where they had to go back to press. X-Force sold more than 5 million copies. It just didn't sell enough to get the 100,000 extra to make a 5.1 million copies. It was like 5,076,000, okay? But but we went back to press. We went back to press to meet that need, to get that extra um, need if, if you didn't miss, if you missed out on one of those X-Force uh, editions with the different trading cards. Marvel went back. It's a gold copy. That they didn't do that unless they needed to do that. They don't need to reprint something. They did it because of demand. This person for a day and a half denied the existence of this sales achievement. And there were plenty of people who wanted to join in with him and shape the narrative. And all they gave was opinions, no facts, no figures. All I did was show up. I couldn't name call. That's not okay. Could not insult. All I could do was say, you are wrong. Here is the correct. And then say, I believe this is irresponsible. It was irresponsible. But what it showed me is that there is a generation of fans who are all too quick to diminish the accomplishments of not only, not only myself, but my peers. The death of Superman was brought into question that day. And the sales achievements that that, that, that it had. And, uh, and Dan Jurgens, the writer-illustrator of Death of Superman, he joined in. He joined in saying, on my side, backing historical sales figures backing historical achievements against this known writer who decided to tell an audience that he has that these did not exist, these weren't true. All we could do at that point was offer the historical recorded sales data and history. But it wasn't enough for the people who didn't want to believe it and who wanted to diminish it. And you now have a narrative of saying, well, but those didn't... One retailer, a retailer said, well, you know, Rob, I ordered that, but I didn't sell all those. That doesn't matter. You paid for the books on your shelf because you ordered what you believed you were going to sell and you paid for that full allotment. That is a sale. That counts as a sale. You know, in the pandemic, I bought a lot of soup, canned goods. We haven't eaten it all yet. We haven't consumed it. That doesn't take away that I bought it at the market. I bought a ton of canned beans, soups in case, hey man, this pandemic turns into an extinction level event. We're boarded in. Okay, just because I haven't shot all the bullets in my gun doesn't mean I didn't buy the ammo. So this idea that this all has to have another level of qualification is ridiculous, but it showed me the fans and the people who, you know what showed up that day? The lapsed creator. They wanted to be heard. I love this. This is my favorite era. I bought so many of these copies. I opened it. I reread it once a year. I love X-Force. I love the trading cards. I love the series. I stopped buying comics, blah, blah, here. I wish they made comic books more like this. Okay? That is the identity and the profile 
of the lapsed comic book reader, the guy who's got off and says, I haven't read comics in the last 20 years, but man, that was my favorite comics. I wish they made comics more like this. I will buy your 30th anniversary comic. So they say, I'll come back for you. And that's going to be a real, uh, uh, you know, th th there's going to be a great disparity about who's going to come back and do it and, and, and to revisit a 30th anniversary. I'm not doing it for sales. I'm doing it for passion. My I have not had to do comic books to pay the bills for a great long time. And I'm very charmed and live a blessed life. And I'm very thankful for that. I do comics because it's contagious within me. I exist to tell comic book stories. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do every day when I grow up. <laughs> I just said every day when I grow up. Also true. Every day when I wake up. I want to do comics. I want to make comic stories. I want to present them. I want to see them printed. I want to hold the physical copies. I want them to have them in a digital library as well. I want to have a trade collection. I want to have a hardcover. I want to have a blown up, you know, bigger collection. I just, I love telling comics. That's why I do what I do. I didn't do a 30th anniversary X-Force to sell millions of comedies. copies. I did it to revisit those characters and I hope you take the ride with me. But as many people who want to come back from that day want to come back, great, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that together. But those people who showed up and said, I loved Cable Win, I love Shatterstar Win, I love Deadpool, that's because they're no longer in the game. But they casually peruse and they like to interact and watch from afar, okay? Then there's the readers, some of which have a decidedly, uh, uh, a, a very distinct notion of what they want out of a comic book. And it's not what I give them. And a long time ago, Larry Martyr, who was running Image Comics, said that comic books was going to turn into poetry. It was going to be read in small houses, small... What he meant was, when he said comic books is going, are going to be turned into poetry, at that time, you would go to different, you know, speakeasies, stuff like that in the 90s to, to re have people read poetry and, and prose, okay? And, and I, got, I got what he was saying. That's just the danger of what we're going to be very, very niche, is what he said. So there, there are people who want a niche representation of some of their favorite characters. And there's a bunch of people who, whenever I say I'm going to interact with characters that I created like the X-Force characters like Cable and Deadpool and Domino and Shatterstar, they want to remind me that they don't like that version of them. And I look at their profiles on social media and I see that they all have kind of a manga or anime representation in their photo avatars. It, it's, it's 9 out of 10 of them have something, whether it's from My Hero Academia, whether it's from Attack on Titan and, and Demon Slayer, everything in between. Manga anime representation, representation in their avatars. That's the art that they are featuring. And they all apparently live on Krakoa. They all have a location. It says Krakoa. And they don't like me. And they claim to read new comics. And they claim to impact new comics. But I'm not sure they do. Because I don't see a face. I don't see an identity. And they're not sharing. You know, they, they don't ever show that they have the comics. And now, you know, now they'll start doing that. That's fine. That, that's not a qualifier. It's just what I've experienced today. It's not a challenge. It's what I've experienced today. And they come out and they live on Krakoa. That's where they're that's where they say they are. Um, and 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 they don't like what I'm when I interact with my own characters that I made bestsellers. They've decided they like their niche version of whatever they're interacting with these characters. And maybe it's just I, I know artists like Peach Momoka have. Uh, introduced a more anime manga look to many of these characters, the the existing manga characters. They've got more manga anime illustrated styles than ever before. And I think people just kind of like that. And that is a feminine representation, not just because Peach is feminine. The, the, the artwork, there are feminine lines and there are aggressive lines. And I draw aggressive lines, hard lines, crusty lines. This is now art speak. We are talking about art, 
feminine lines and um, um, aggressive male lines are part of the art technique. A brush, a soft brush is a feminine line. A hard quill is an aggressive, a male line. That is, this is part of what I was taught in my art department in the 80s and what I read about um, in, in art history. So please, those are terms that I am taking from learned education, okay? Uh, uh, but there is a, a softer, um, th there's hard anime and manga and there's soft anime manga. We can just go, if, if, if hard and soft is a better than, than feminine line, aggressive line, male line, whatever, I'm just telling you, uh, all I'm doing is trying to verbally through a podcast explain to you why some lines are presented in a different way than other lines. Barry Windsor Smith, everything about his line is aggressive. It's very aggressive. Um, everything about Wendy Peeney, who did ElfQuest, who I'm an avid fan of, and I share it in my Facebook groups, how much I loved ElfQuest. She had a very feminine line. There are men who do very feminine lines, and there are some women who do a, the aggressive extra tooth on that stuff, that extra crow quill, that scratch, that... Okay, this is just about lines and artwork. But the people who like the more the softer approach, which I have called traditionally the feminine line in terms of the artwork, they don't like the aggressive stuff. They don't like, and they don't like it aggressive in story or in style. And they have shared with me how much they don't like it. Sometimes in ways I can't repeat. It's rude. It's um, cursing, and it's meant to inflame me and trigger me, which is not going to happen, because. I know that my behavior is being watched and I have to be on my best behavior if I'm going to be publicly interacting with people. But sometimes they pile on me as fast and as hard as they can in order to, with tons of insults, just personal insults, personal insults that are meant to trigger me and it's not going to happen. I've become quite disciplined at this. But that is the reader, or they claim to be a reader, or are they a reader, or are they just a an observer who wants to get involved on social media and their contribution to fandom is tearing others down and telling them that they don't matter and they don't like what you're doing and they wish you would stop. That's part of another aspect of fandom. The collector just, he's just happy that what he has has value. The lapsed reader wants to tell you how great it was when he was interacting with it. Okay. And then again, this, 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 the new reader, I'm not sure where they're reading it. And it would break my heart if they were pirating this stuff. Because I know piracy is plaguing our industry terribly. It is costing the business so much. But uh, that those people weigh in with some of the rudest, most um, aggressive, insulting behavior. And they were all too eager to join on the, the writer who said none of these sales figures happened. And then when he was told that they did in fact happen, well, they didn't really matter because they weren't true representation of what the book sold. So what I'm getting to is the diminishment of the previous achievement. Just like my son says, Jordan couldn't hang with today's athletes. These new people said the, that those old books that did really well, that had bigger audience than today's books, weren't as good as what we're giving you, which I'm not sure what that serves. But the agenda is... Today's stuff is better than yesterday's stuff. And that you're never going to get anybody to agree on. So let's just all agree to disagree and be nice about it. It was 2005 and I was having a meeting in LA at a popular restaurant called LA Farms. Uh, it was Stefan's 
LA Farms and then it was The Roost. It's been both. It's now closed permanently. But it was the hip power lunch place in Hollywood. I never made a reservation to eat there. I was told to meet there. So people made reservations and made that I met with an agent or an attorney or a piece of talent. Well, I was parking my car and I was walking into the restaurant and Quentin Tarantino was walking to his car. Not valeted out in a giant parking lot. The LA Farms was in a business center. It was in a business park, which was kind of part of its charm, but it was a high-end five-star experience, okay? And Quentin Tarantino, who I knew was a comic book fan, I took the risk of maybe introducing myself and him knowing that I was a comic book guy. I said, Quentin Tarantino. He had a jacket on, t-shirt, jeans. He said, hey, man. I said, hey, it's Rob Liefeld. I, you know, draw a comic. He goes, Rob, I know you are. Hey, good to see you. Nice to see you. How's it going? I said, it's great. It's great. I, I want to give you a comic. I want to give you a comic. Youngblood Bloodsport was a comic I had done recently. And I went to the backseat of my car. I had a box of them. And I gave it to Quentin. And he's like, oh, hey, hey man. Thanks, thanks for this. Thanks for this. Kill Bill. Uh, one and two had come out. That that was his, he was dining out on that amazing experience that was released about a year apart from each other. Well, one was fall and one was, you know, one was spring, one was Christmas. Great. Kill Bill one and two. Amazing. So I was gushing over him and I asked if he would ever think about doing a comic book movie. And he said, oh, no, 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 man. No, 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 no way. If I do a comic book, I'd love to do a comic book someday, but I, it would have to be my own universe. I would have to create it. I would have to own it. I, I can't be doing None of this universe where, where the fans tell me how, how I'm getting it wrong. How I, I, I can't deal with that, man. It's got, it's, it would have to be something that I created from the ground up. And I said, well, I, I, I'd love to be a part of that, of course. What are you, you going to say to Quentin Tarantino in the parking lot, right? And I said, Quentin, oh my gosh, I hope you do that someday. He goes, yeah, maybe, man. I, you know, I, got, I, got, I got some other movies and films to do along the way, but, but perhaps. But he was adamant. We shook hands. He said, thanks for this. He went to his car. I went into the restaurant. And it was just a cool chance encounter. And, uh, and, but he was adamant. Now that was 2005, 2000, 2005. And we only had two X-Men films by then. Um, two Spider-Man films, two, two, you know, good, good quality product. Maybe not so much of the DC stuff, but nowhere near where we got to now with fans and MCU and movie fans. It's a whole different thing. And, 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 and again, DC fans versus Marvel fans. It seems even more aggressive in the, in the film world. But my thing is, I've been observing, and, the, and that's, what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. The Quentin Tarantino thing is to remind you that he is so mindful. He was so mindful in 2005 when the internet was young, before social media. Before social media, he was mindful of how the fans would dictate and tell him what he was doing right or wrong. And he didn't want that. He wanted you to experience it pure, you couldn't tell him that he wasn't adhering to such and such Spider-Man trope or such and such X-Men trope, okay? Quentin knew. He knew it. Like, no way. Be, be, do my own thing and control it so that I don't have to hear about how I failed in my attempt to adapt this stuff. So, and now Quentin's writing books, by the way. Saw an interview with him this Sunday and he talked about how he's been looking forward to doing novels and books and, and, uh, and again, speaking to the difficulty of making comics and movies. After the script is done, you got to go cast it. You got to go do the locations. You got to leave your house. You got to shoot it. You got to be on the road. You know, it's difficult. You got to love it. You got to love doing it. Just like comic books. Once you come up with the idea, that's the easiest part. Presenting it, writing it, drawing it, crafting it, putting it on, on paper, putting it on the digital platform, whatever, if you're drawing it on Procreate. It's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We gotta, you got to love it. You got to love it to do it. And I'm not sure every fan that's weighing in, loves it. I, I do think there are 
the provocateurs who want to push your buttons. There's the misinformed, of which we ran into on X-Force 5, who wanted to inform everybody in the world that a historical recorded fact was not, in, in fact, a historical recorded fact and would not backtrack and later, later, two days later, tried to pivot and give a different information. But it's already been done. Just like the fan who wants to come in and tell the site that is showing you that X-Men number one came out in 1963. No, man, that came out in September. Don't you know? Don't you know? And insult you in the process. Who's going to tell you you're wrong? Well, maybe you need to learn about a street date and a cover date. And if it definitely says September on the cover, it did not come out in September. It came out three months prior to that. Four months, maybe. It's a street date and a cover date. But that doesn't stop these guys from immediately wanting to rush in and correct you and tell you you're wrong and they're right. But if you tell them that they're wrong, holy crap, then you've abused them without name calling. But once you correct them and say, maybe you should learn about this, your gatekeeper, which is a new term to to segment away people with knowledge so that you don't diminish their fantasies. Again, so much of this is about protecting what they want to believe and what they want to believe matters because that's two different things. What they want to believe and what they want to believe matters. And they will protect it at all costs by diminishing you and making you the bully, making you the gatekeeper, in quotes, gatekeeper. Don't you gatekeep me. Don't you tell me that the U.S. agent has really turned out to be a good guy in comic books? Because right now I want to believe that he's a horrible Nazi based on the episode that I just saw on Disney+. Plus. Wait, what do you mean he turns a corner and I'm supposed to sympathize with him and like him later on? No, I've already drawn a hard line in the sand and you can't convince me otherwise. Fandom is crazy and I'm part of it, so I'm crazy too. We are absolutely living in very weird times. The lapsed collector, the collector, and the reader fan. Okay, those are the three elements driving the market right now. And the collector will jump back in, maybe for an anniversary issue like X-Force or a Spawn or an Image 30th, okay, or a Venom 200 because that tickles their nostalgia and maybe they get to jump in the pool again and have a good experience because this is the maybe the Venom that they wanted to see, okay? What a, it, it is a giant field. I have covered it as much as I can today, but fandom, it's changing. It's, it can be a little tricky, Okay, um, I really dislike, I discovered it during Winter Soldier Falcon, the, the idea, the idea of the gatekeeper. Oh, that I, 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 I didn't understand that. But if you're, no, pointing out someone correct information is not gatekeeping. Only if you demean them in the process. But you can share something of knowledge, hoping that they will enlighten themselves. And know more. Because I don't want to know more than you. I want us all to know the same amount. It's one of the reasons I do this podcast. Is to share the, the information. The wealth of information that I've collected. Since I was 7 years old. Buying these comics in 1974. Okay? I love it. I love talking about fandom. And comics. And embellishing. And finishing. And inking. And G.I. Joe. Snake Eyes. Dead Game 5. Hope you pick it up. Hope you check it out. Let's continue to interact. I'm... Always on social media. I'm at Twitter, uh, at Robert Liefeld, blue check mark, at Robert Liefeld, the full name on Twitter, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Shorter, at Rob Liefeld, still the blue check on Instagram. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over social media. I love talking to you guys. This is how I'm experiencing fandom. But I've just given you my observations of the lapsed fan, of the reader fan, and lapsed fan doesn't really show up on Wednesday, but collector guy and reader fan show up on Wednesday for the same book for radically different reasons, and maybe, just maybe, Collector Guy is the more reliable of the two at this point in time. 
Isn't that crazy? It is. It is crazy. The show is crazy. You're crazy. I'm crazy. Not in a bad way, in the best possible way. Because we're crazed for what we love and what we love is comics and pop culture and all of it. And I love to share. And thank you for listening to this podcast. This is the time in the podcast at the end of the show. I always read reviews. And uh, you guys are so kind. And I, I would love for you guys to keep leaving um, the reviews that you do for this show. I'm going to read two of them right now. Fun and positive from Garen Gillum. Garen Gillum. I love listening to this podcast so much, Garen writes. In fact, it just may be my new favorite. If you have any interest in the history of comic books, in the universe and behind the scenes, you will enjoy this podcast. Rob Rob covers his personal history with comic books beginning into the mid-70s up to the modern day. Fun and positive. He gave me five stars. Garen Gillum, thank you so much for this review. Finally, a great comics podcast from Ike Ball, A-I-Q-B-A-L. Rob's passion and love for comics shines through in this podcast. He is genuine and gets to the point quickly. I look forward to future episodes. It helps that he and I are the same age and grew up reading the Bronze Age of comics. Like my love for 80s music, my love for comic books will endure forever. Ike Ball, thank you. It said, finally a great comics podcast. Thank you for this review. Thank you for leaving five stars. You guys, reviews matter um, the, 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 the ratings, the reviews matter. They help us on our platform. I appreciate it so much when you share. You guys, thank you for that. Thank you for hanging out with me today. I hope that you have the very best day. Until we talk again, you are going to take care of yourself. You know the drill. You are going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. 